everyone, and welcome to the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast and ours too. I am your co-host, TJ. And I am your co-host, Bridget. And we are very excited. I'm not sure why we're adopting these theatrical accents, but <laughs> we're here this week to talk about Crossed Up, the 13th episode of the third season. And as always, since I gave the lead in, Bridget is going to do us the honor of giving us the summary for the episode. Well, this episode is an homage to the 1948 film Sorry, Wrong Number, starring Barbara Stanwyck, which involves a woman who thinks that she has a very weak heart who's bedridden, uh, overhearing something on the telephone and trying to figure out what exactly she overheard and how to stop it. And it turns out what she overheard was someone plotting to kill her and then she dies. Which is a lovely little narrative. Um, and... In our case, thankfully, Jessica doesn't die, but she similarly overhears something on the telephone, which TJ, sorry, I I just have to pause and say, like, I just love the premise of this episode does not even make sense in the 21st century. It makes no sense at all. Yeah, we don't have this technology anymore. And I think that it's just really fun. And I I kind of want to, like, show this episode to like young people and see if they are just totally perplexed by this crossed wire thing anyway just to piggyback on that briefly i also think it's wild that when you and i were kids they still had operators just because how we did just because how quickly thereafter they sort of disappeared like but how crazy it is to think about how ubiquitous those were you could talk to the operator you could ask for an remember when you could ask for like an emergency interruption if someone was on the line isn't that wild? Like how different things yeah. are just within our lifetime. The communications technology. It is really wild. So if we can go back to like 1987 for a second, you know, we did still have landlines and operators. And so there's a storm. The wires get crossed. Jessica over here is two guys plotting to kill someone. She doesn't know who they are. She doesn't know who they're plotting to kill. And she is bedridden from an accident. And uh, all the it's like Jessica in bed and like all the men in her life around her, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure. But they all think she's totally nuts. And then, of course, she's right and someone does die and then they have to figure out who did it. And in the in fact, two exciting died. climax, which is totally ripped from Sorry, Wrong Number, we see the killer cutting her phone line so she can't call for help and then slowly creeping up the stairs to come and kill her. But thankfully, Jessica has a panic button and the cops show up. Yep, she has a medic alert bracelet, or, well, is that a necklace, but, you know, the... Uh, I guess those aren't, that is still a technology that exists. It is, my grandmother had one when she lived at home. There's something about it that feels very 80s, 90s, because do you remember that um, iconic commercial, Help, I've fallen and I can't get up. Of course I remember it, it was part of my childhood. So Seth gives that to Jessica, and she is like, you can just see on her face, she is like, this is... No, I'm never touching this. She won't even wear it. She puts it on the nightstand. But it sure came in handy. And I love that we, you know, that even in bed, Jessica, and, and, you know, bedbound as she is, Jessica is someone who is just so indomitable a spirit that she's not going to let that, like, encourage her to stay that way. Like, you know, so Austin was, you know, because she's in her 60s at this point. Like, it's not uncommon for people to become bedridden and just never bounce back. But not Jessica Fletcher. By golly, she's, you know, as spitfire as always. And I really appreciate that. It's a positive role model, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, this episode is a little bit tricky. You know, I uh, I recently um, hosted an event at the Maple Theater in Bloomfield, Michigan. Shout out to Ruth and John at the Maple Theater, um, where we watched Sorry, Wrong Number. And I was explaining to the audience afterward, like, I kind of struggle with it in terms of 
its message and its gender ideology because we think of Barbara Stanwyck as this like tour de force of a performer, right? I mean, she has gravitas. She's strong. You know, a couple of episodes ago, we compared Kate Mulgrew to her, right? So I think she's, you know, she's indomitable too. And yet in throughout the whole episode, she's very weak and she's in bed and she can't move and she's just panicking. And I think similarly, you know, what makes Murder, She Wrote is Jessica's vitality mm. and that she is the one who leads investigations. And it, it it's sort of interesting from a writerly perspective to set up a puzzle where can Jessica lead the investigation without ever getting out of bed, right? But from a gender perspective, it's sort of... I don't know, tr- uh, maybe a little troubling to me because it, it takes away like all of her physical power. Yeah. Right. All she can do is like dictate things for Amos and Grady to go do and then hope that they'll listen to her. And most of the time they spend just sort of gaslighting her into telling her she didn't actually hear what she heard on the phone. Right. And I mean, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, the only thing I would add is that, you know, I, at least I as a viewer found myself getting increasingly impatient with the men because, mm-hmm. of course, like, it's Jessica Fletcher. It's Jessica. She's we know right. that she's always right. And we know that Amos is a dunce, and he's being even more insufferably Amosy than usual. I mean, he almost gets, he's the reason she almost gets killed in this episode, right? Like, he is repeatedly saying things out loud in front of the suspects. Right. He's so stupid in this episode. He is very stupid, even for Amos. And I, we all know that I'm te- f- firmly Team Mort, um, and this episode reminds me of why. But anyway. <laughs> um, and it's just really striking to me, like, that everyone is underestimating Jessica, and as you put it, ga- like, deliberately kind of gaslighting her. And it's like, you all know Jessica. You know she's not the kind of person. You know she's not that kind of lady, right? Yeah, and it's like, you know she's always right. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, have you all taken leave of your senses? I think maybe if they had, like, given her, if we'd seen Seth give her, like, some painkillers or something. Right. Like, if that had been part of the bit, you know, and then we're like, oh, maybe she was loopy, but, like, the episode immediately puts us in her point of view. Like, we hear the phone call that she hears. So we know she's not nuts. And, yeah. and as you say, like, at this point, these guys have been through a lot of murders with her. They should know to just shut up and listen to her. Right. I mean, and Seth does kind of give Amos the right act when he's like, you know, this is an awfully big coincidence that she overhears this conversation and then this guy ends up dead. You don't uh-huh. think that's, like, uh-huh. suspicious? And then Amos is like, well, no, I think it was just a break And it's like, come on now. This is really... I mean, I wouldn't, I would never say that Mercury has bad writing, but I was like, this seems a bit of a stretch, even yeah. for notoriously dense, or notoriously dense Amos, to be that willing to, like, ex- ascribe it to a, a mere coincidence when it's so clearly not. Maybe let's take a minute and talk about what the murder was. So we can use that info. Right. So it's this <laughs> never mentioned before <laughs> lumber baron. <laughs> Who apparently lives in this opulent estate near Cabot Cove. That we never, do you notice we never actually like see it? We see like, we see the exterior from a really far distance. We do. Or we just see like a fraction of the exterior. Yes. Like we never actually see the estate. Yes. And so, you know, he is shot and he has several sons as well as a granddaughter. And he apparently changed his will, but it was never actually written up. But there's also a diary that he written down the changes in. One of his sons is played by Tony Dow, which is kind of amazing. Um, and then he also has a daughter-in-law, and it's a whole big thing. And then the man who did the shooting also, or supposedly did the shooting, also ends up dead. And then Amos, once again, thinks that's an accident, that he just fell down the stairs. And it's like, really? Like, 
I mean, I have questions about Amos, but I also have questions about yeah. the residents of Cabot Cove who keep, keep electing, electing this person. <laughs> like yeah. someone who is clearly way out of his depth when it comes to criminal investigations. Like, mm, I have some real serious misgivings about the collective political um, acumen of the citizens of Cabot Cove. Do you think, like, every time the sheriff's election rolls around that um, Mort is, like, writing in <laughs> other names? Like, he probably, like, writes in Jessica's name I think every so. year. I mean, because isn't there a point where, where Seth says something, or where Jessica's asking, like, Seth, have you ever had a moment when you think you're, you've, you know, you've taken leave of your senses or you've gone crazy? And he's like, yes, every time I vote for Amos. Yes. I'm glad you mentioned that moment. I actually wrote that down. And um, I think that, you know, for all of my sort of earlier they're not really silly gripes about the episode. Cause actually I love this episode, but concerns about it. Um, despite that, what I do love is that the episode, it feels like they just let themselves go wild with the humor in this episode. We see so much physical comedy on the face of Lansbury, um, especially regarding Grady. So Grady is there taking care of her cause she can't get out of bed. And he like, for some reason is only serving her dishes made with tuna, and we just see her sort of like, you know, making lots of cute facial expressions as she's trying to like thank him, but also like be disgusted. And we get these zingers between Jess and Seth, like the one you just mentioned. And at another point, um, you know, it's a, there's a storm, there's a hurricane in the area. Hurricane so everybody's Ida. Hurricane Ida. So everybody's holding up. And at one point, Seth and Jessica's like bedridden, right? And at one point, Seth like knocks on the door and he's like, you guys there? And she's like, no, we went out for a jog, you know? So it's just like. I just felt like the writers went bananas making all these like fun zingers. So I think the episode has so much humor. Yeah. And I mean, it's always nice to see Seth and Jessica together. Like that's the pairing that I think is the most, you know, impactful, but it's also nice to see Grady. It's also nice to see Grady in Cabot Cove since so often it's Jessica going to Grady, not the other way around. Yeah. So it's kind of nice to see him in Cabot Cove, which presumably, you know, is where he's from too. That's what I was wondering. Did, did he grow up here? I mean, they never tell us concretely. Right. I mean, that was my supposition is that, you know, this is his birthplace. Because what what we also get because he's in Cabot Cove is we get to see him interact with Amos and Seth. And I think his interactions, especially with Seth, you know, they're both like concerned about Jessica. They both want to take care of her. She is the lady in both of their lives. Um and I think it's it's just really cute to get to see them interact. And mm-hmm. it made me – it raised a bunch of questions for me about, you know, how often does Grady visit? How well does he know Seth? Because we know Seth hasn't always lived here. Right. Um, did Seth know him when he was younger at all? Like, at how long – you know, how old is Grady? How long has Seth been in Cabot Cove? Uh, it, it just raised a bunch of, like, questions for me about what the backstory is. But I loved getting to see them interact because we almost never do. Right. The Murder, She Wrote Cinematic Universe. Like, we need to sort of – Oh, no, you're going to bring that back again this week. Yes, we need to dive <laughs> – that's the new Grace Note. That's the – that's my new substitution for my former uh, – so we're not F- going to say Grace F- Note F- anymore. Now we're just going to talk about the uh, MSWCU. I guess if, you know, technically since it's a TV show, I guess it would be Murder, She Wrote Television Universe. So MSW TV. Anyway, we don't need to get off on that tangent. But anyway, <laughs> it is fun to see this new combination of characters that we haven't really seen before. And so we have all the, yeah. heavy, all the heavy hitters when it comes to, you know, the, our favorite denizens of Cabot Cove. Amos, I stand in awe of your gift for blind certainty, but as so often happens, you are dead wrong. 
how can Amos Tupper, like, how does he just hold his head up in Cabot Cove with <laughs> Seth running around, like, just trashing him left and right? Like, not, I mean, he's not even, Seth doesn't even, like, try to couch it in politeness. No. Nope. Or save it to talk privately to Jessica about. Like, he just says it to Amos's face. Yeah, it's pretty, but, you know, that's the nature of small town life is that, you know, everybody knows everybody else and everyone has very definitive, blunt, sp- bluntly, bluntly spoken opinions about everyone else. So it makes sense that Amos being, and I also just think that Amos is just kind of vacant. So I think that it might make sense <laughs> that he would be rather blasé about the whole thing. He actually had one good idea in this episode for the investigation. It was so it was his idea to go try to secretly record everyone so he could play back the tape and Jessica could tell them if she identified the voice mm. that she heard on the phone. And we get this like really funny scene where Amos is talking to the three sons and he has to like physically move to stand next to each of them and lean in close so the recorder will pick it up and they all think he's like totally weird. And it's actually, it's just like a, a moment of like fun physical comedy. Mm-hmm. And then there's that point when they're playing it back and they can hear Amos is basically his heartbeat and his stomach <laughs> grumbling. And Seth's like, you know, you might have a heart murmur. You might want to come in and have that looked at. Like, I'm a little concerned. <laughs> it's also the moment where this dumbass um, like tells the three sons that Jessica heard the phone call, which immediately puts Jessica's life in danger as a it as someone does. who has info about the murder, right? Right. So maybe we should talk about who who does commit the murders in question. Yeah. Like that's that's the question. So you mentioned that one of the sons is played by Tony Dow. Famous for being Leave It to Beaver. Yeah, and this is actually while the new Leave It to Beaver is on the air. I, you were probably too young for that, weren't you? I remember. I, well, first of all, I don't. I loathe Leave It to Beaver. I always have, but uh-huh. I do remember the remake of it. Yeah, but. I remember watching it as a kid. I was so excited. Um, but I gotta tell you, I think that Tony Dow is um, more attractive in this than when he was younger. Like, he just has these beautiful piercing eyes that you can't see in black and white. That's true. And he, I mean, he aged exactly as he should have. Like, you know, he yeah. he looks as an older man exactly as you would have expected him to look. Yeah. Like, some people who have that sort of baby face cuteness get weird looking as they get older. But Tony Dow, like, really... He's, like, baby face with gray hair. Yep. And, you know, he doesn't look funny. He just looks like an older version of himself. And that's really, you know, that's kind of nice. I mean, R.I.P. It's Tony Dow, who just died last year, but still. Oh, did he? Um, yeah. I didn't... I don't pay attention to that. You always have to text me when celebrities I'm, die. I'm the, de- I'm the harbinger of death, as my boyfriend frequently remarks, that I, I do the death announcements every day, so... Anyway, R.I.P. Tony Dow. This is literally like you and I will be talking about something and you're like, pause, so-and-so just died. And I'm like, oh, okay. Why are you texting me Bridget doesn't care about death. She's kind of rather... Except when Angela Lansbury died and you didn't phone me. (laughs) Oh, well, to be fair, I was was busy at the time. And my phone blew up because everyone knew that I would be very deeply concerned about that. But anyway... I was watching watching Bros when I found out, actually. You were watching Bros? Well, and then I found out right after it was over. Like, yeah. I saw the news alert, and I was like, oh my god. Anyway. Two two things I like. Angela Lansbury and the movie Bros. Okay, yep. so anyway, so Tony Dow, his character is married to a very imperious, regal, and very beautiful woman, played by Colleen Camp, who was the first Kristen in Dallas. Oh. Not the Kristen who shot JR. Right. But she was the first Kristen. And she owns a very 
elegant and su- and also suitably regal cat. Yes. Who she, muff, apparently muff. Do- who she apparently dotes upon, as one does when one has a cat. And just carries the cat. Or, okay, she carries I, I've like never met villain. a cat like this. She, yeah, she carries the cat around, no harness, no leash. And the cat just, like, tolerates this. Like, I feel like most people, if they tried to do this, their cat would be gone. Yeah, it's like, she carries it around like she's a Bond villain. Like, she was just, like, stroking the cat. Like, yeah. Like, who are you? Like, what? what is, are you Dr. Evil? Like, what exactly is happening here? There's, like, an early scene between them where she's talking about little Muff Muff. And I'm like, this is some really weird writing. Like, what is happening? But the whole point was that we needed to know she had a cat because... Tony Dow is allergic, and so we learn ultimately that he – Jessica had described the voice on the phone as raspy, and the reason it was raspy was because the cat was around, and so his allergy – he was suffering from allergies. And so that's our clue that it was him, and she had to have been there too with the cat. And that she was the one who killed the assassin. She was the one who killed the assassin, and we're told at the end she probably orchestrated the whole thing where he hired the assassin in the first place. Like right. she was sort of the mastermind, and she's the one who comes after Jessica in that f- really fun and very dramatic climax. I know it's very like I mean, as you say, it's very sorry wrong number. It's also very Hitchcockian. Like, it is. Mm-hmm. It's very like rear window, especially when Jessica's flailing to try to get her crutch and it falls, and then you know she's like. Dodie! She cries out her name. She's like, Dodie! Yeah. Then it's revealed who it is the whole time. It's really well shot and edited, I think, and lit, too. It's like um, the murderer is always in shadow, but Jessica is lit through the... We're supposed to be... It's like we're supposed to be the moonlight, you know, coming through the window just enough that we see Jessica, but we can never... We don't see who the murderer is, and we don't know who it is until Jessica yells Dodie's name. Um, But, you know, I gotta say, because I'm always the cynic on this podcast... We see Dodie cutting the phone wire. We see Dodie coming inside. And then Dodie goes up the stairs to Jessica's bedroom. How how did she know where Jessica was? And how did she know which bedroom? Hmm. Yes. I don't know. Those are, those are questions that... It doesn't actually make sense. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, like, I also I have to admit that I was a little frustrated that we didn't get the confessional. Like, usually the murder, you know, the murder she wrote coup de grace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the murder is like, yes, I did it. And here's why. But we don't even get that. We just get it all related by Jessica, which I think robs it of a little bit of the dramatic impact that it normally has. Because just when Jessica is getting, you know, or Jody's getting ready to do away with Jessica, we hear the approaching sirens and she flees only to be intercepted by the police. But but there's no real like, conclusion there. And I found that to be like a rather odd way of giving us the, the climax and the conclusion. Sure. I guess that, yeah, I can see that, especially since you and I talk a lot about how those confessional scenes are really important to the sort of moral fabric of the show. And here we just get Jessica sort of explaining it. And and ultimately, we learn, like, the reason she wanted to kill the, the robber baron lumber mill guy was that he, um because she had to do it before he actually changed his will, because they all knew he was planning to change it, had written it all down in the diary but it hadn't been legally written down and witnessed yet. And so if we kill him now, we still get some of the money because he was going to leave it all to the granddaughter. Whose parents are conveniently dead. Yeah, I don't know. If you were going to cut people out of your will, I I just feel like, do people just not read enough Agatha Christie or something? Like, if you're going to cut people out of your will, you don't announce it to them. They're just going to murder you. Like, come on. This is murder mystery 101 yep or you you do it and then you tell them like that's the order not the other way around like you cut them out then you tell them 
You tell them, so then they have no motive to ever kill you. Or the Joan Crawford method, which you surprise your adopted daughter when you're dead and cut you and then cut you out. And then your right. then your daughter it's a tell all, but anyway. Um so, you know, it seems as you say, maybe the people who are in these murder mysteries need to read more murder mysteries so that they understand how not to get yeah. murdered. It's like horror movies. You know, we're always saying don't people watch horror movies? Why, why are you yeah. outside? What are you doing? Why are you running upstairs? Don't you watch a movie? Come on. Don't get cornered. Like, you know, it's the same thing yeah. with murder mysteries. Like this old guy that we don't ever meet. Although I, I did like that Jessica makes, that the writing makes the point of, you know, suggesting that they don't really mix with the townsfolk, which helps to explain uh-huh. why they aren't as much of a presence. Why we've never heard of them before. Right. So it's a nice, convenient way of, you know, explaining why this lumber magnate you know, who has never been mentioned at all, despite the many developments that have taken mm-hmm. place in Cabot Cove and the many economic movements that have taken place in Cabot Cove. But I will also say that what I appreciated is that, you know, it, at, coming from a small town, there is usually at least one family that has a lot of money from some sort of extractive industry, whether it's lumber or coal or, ga- or glass or whatever, or gas, whatever it is, like, every small town usually has at least one very wealthy, powerful family. And I like it that we had that here as well. It gives a little aspect of Cabot Cove that we don't always see. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Grady. Yes, everyone's favorite nephew. And he's less incompetent than usual, which I appreciated. Like, it's very, it would be very easy for him to just be the usual one-note fumbling, gets framed for murder Grady. But we have he actually has some other things to do with this episode, which I appreciate. This episode really does add to his, characterization, his characterization, because we haven't seen him since... Um, we haven't seen him since Christopher Bundy died on Sunday. And before that, it was murder by appointment only where he's trying to get the job in the cosmetics factory and gets tangled up in murder and he's being so stupid. And I just I think that you and I are often very critical of him because he that's sort of the role he plays in this narrative universe, right, is to be the dunce and to get to stumble into things that Jessica has to get him out of. And what I like about this episode is, first of all, we're not in his world. So he's we're, we're sort of removed from that chaos. He's in Jessica's world now. And his job is to be the caretaker, you know, and so he's and and he's still sort of mangles that like he's making her tuna quiche and tuna pot pie and tuna this and that. And she's like, oh, my God, Seth, please smuggle me in food. But we see him being willing to take care of her like he's ostensibly given up his life and taken off work to come and take care of her. And I just think it adds something really nice to his character, make him seem more mature and it, it, it tells us more about the depth of their relationship with each other. And totally unrelated, the tuna quiche bit or the tuna pot pie bit just reminds me so much of the Golden Girls episode where Blanche is on the diet and the only thing she can eat is like the tuna quiche for dinner. It's her sensible dinner. And then Rose is like, the little fish pie? Oops, I had a snack. You mean the little pie? <laughs> <laughs> it was so, it was so fishy. Where's my shake? Yes. <laughs> Well, that was, I had to wash down this little pie. I love that one. And then, you know, when he when he <laughs> but, tries to, like, when he yes. finally figures out that, like, maybe tuna everything is, like, not the best thing to be serving her, the next thing he serves her is a pepperoni pizza. And she's actually pretty excited about it. And it makes me wonder if Jessica eats pizza often. I mean, if she does, she's a woman after my own heart because I love few things as much as I love pizza. <laughs> pepperoni? Oh, yeah. Love a pepperoni pizza. But you know what? He serves her like a personal size. And then um, there. That's not nearly There's enough. like a. No. And then there's like a cut to <laughs> later. And there's a little bit left on her plate. 
like someone took the prop and like destroyed it. So it looked like she'd eaten it and left us a little sliver. And I'm just like, come on. She couldn't finish that. Really? I was gonna say, who doesn't finish a personal pizza? I mean, come on now. Like, I would eat that thing like in one, like in a minute, and then be left with who has hunger. like three bites left and is like, oh, I'm too full. I can't do it. <laughs> well, in defense, sometimes it does get to the point where you're like, okay, I cannot eat anymore. I will explode. We also see Jessica's. This is the first time we've ever seen Jessica's bedroom. That's true. We usually we've seen her um, dining room and her kitchen and her living room downstairs but we've never been upstairs before and i really liked that it's got this sort of um light wood paneling on the bottom and then above that is a pastel wallpaper and just very pastel which you know it's the 80s that tracks but mm-hmm. she's a fireplace which is quite cozy oh i know i love very this. fancy to have a fireplace in your bedroom just another aspect of the jb fletcher homestead that i absolutely adore and a bay window with a telescope I'm sure she uses it to spy on her neighbors, don't you think? Uh, almost certainly. <laughs> I mean, because the, fil- the, the episode makes a point of showing, like, the window flies open and the telescope crashes to the floor, which I'm pretty sure the only reason the telescope is in the set to begin with is just for that effect. <laughs> so it can crash. Because we've never heard Jessica talk about, like, doing any sort of astron- astronomical observ- observances <laughs> at this point. Like, <laughs> you know, I think it's just there so we get the effect of the window flying open. I don't know. She was writing a mystery about... Something that only happened every time Haley's Comet passed by, and so she needed to buy a telescope to do research. Maybe. I mean, that is the kind of, like, intensive research. I mean, Seth does tell her she needs to work on her new book, like, use this time in bed to work on a new book, which what, is... What is wrong with her anyway? Why is she... Can't she just do some... Like, she pulled her back, but, like, this is always a thing in 80s TV. People pulling their backs and then being bedridden, and it seems to me like a better thing to do would be gentle stretching. Am I, like... Am I just like a horrible human being? I'm like, I think that you should just get up and do a little bit of gentle yoga. It would be better for you. Maybe. But I mean, if you wrench it badly enough, you probably should just let it rest. Like, let the muscle recover. Hmm. I mean, she is in her 60s. Like, She's also the person who launched a fitness video about gentle stretching. So, okay, so we see her bedroom. So that's pretty, pretty cool. And then we also, like, she's just in um, pajamas and like dressing gowns the whole time yeah so no elaborate costuming for no elaborate costuming although at one point she is in like a the pink silk dressing gown that is like you know stanwick's Uh costume stanwick only has one costume because it all takes place in one night this takes place over several days so we do see different pajamas which raises a bunch of questions like if she can't get out of bed who's dressing her in all these pajamas um, but one night she wears uh little pale blue men's cotton pajamas like a match set, and I really love that because I love wearing men's pajamas. I mean, who doesn't really? Although I prefer they're so cozy. I mean, right? I'm more of a Blanche Devereaux long flowing. You wear night nightgowns. I mean, I used to. I don't anymore. I just sleep in my. Do you wear the furry slippers that are going to come up in the next episode too? No, I used to, but not anymore. I've simplified. I've simplified my <laughs> nightly couture in the. You probably swan around in caftans all summer too, don't you? I wish. I just sleep in my underwear. But anyway. You also record the podcast in your underwear. I do. I'm wearing I'm just wearing a shirt and underwear right now, in fact. Well, I love this episode. I do too. We we, we all know that I I'm a passionate fan of the Cabot Cove episodes and I suitably it's just, love this it's one. It's so fun. It's funny. I just everybody gets to do these interesting things with their dialogue and with physical humor. I just absolutely love it. 
Me too. I mean, I think it's uh, it's just a fabulous confection of an episode. All right. Well, that is probably a good place to stop. For the Kevin Bridges set, I'm TJ. And we will see you next week. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. 